a new hauling. Just look at the load I'm hauling. Hard work, I hit it harder. Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer. Sun up to sundown, backing up traffic all the way to town. Camo hat and a farmer's tan. Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track. It's episode nine, and we'll talk plant and tillage equipment with Tony McClellan from Case IH, and we'll discuss the recently released 2017 Ag Census with Dan Sumner, director of the Agricultural Issues Center at the University of California, Davis. Then we'll head to the legendary Ernest Tubb record shop for music from country music star and former Grand Ole Opry house band member Tim Atwood. You won't want to miss it. Let's go. Back on Fast Line Fast Track, we've got a special guest with us. It's Tony McClellan, the Case IH Planter Marketing Manager. And we're coming into prime planting season now. And, uh, of course, in some areas of the country, you may still need an airboat to get out there. But uh, everywhere else, uh, everybody's starting to prepare to get those planters out of the shed. And, Tony, what are we seeing in the fields right now? Yeah, you bet, Brent. Um, I, I work with uh, for Case IH with a lot of our product specialists that cover different parts of the country. And um, and they've actually been running quite a bit in, uh, in more of the southern regions. And obviously, you know, the further north you get, it's uh, maybe not quite not quite ripe yet, but it sure is turning. And, um, you know, it's uh, different areas are drying out a little more every day. So we've had quite a few guys running in the south, though, like in Texas and in the Delta, Mississippi Delta region and, uh, and out east. Um, there's, there's actually uh, getting to be quite a bit of corn on the ground in some spots. So many things are on the top of the mind for producers as they hit the fields. Uh, when they're pulling their planters out of the shed for the first time, what are some of the considerations that they should make? Yeah, well, um, there, I, I like to think there's a whole there's a whole bunch of things that would be uh, be good to spend a little time on the planter when you pull it out of the shed. You know, from uh, from getting it hooked up to the tractor properly um, to uh, kind of doing a yard uh, check and inspection to make sure that all systems go. Are, are, are functional and working um, to a, a good detailed inspection of the, the row units and all the wear items to make sure that, uh, that everything is within spec and, uh, and uh, you know, anything that's war um, gets replaced and uh, make sure that you touch all the maintenance points and there's things that need to be maintained, air and tires, you know, grease points greased. So just a good thorough inspection of the planter. And then, um, you know, I think, I think in an ideal situation, if, uh, if, if you can go to the field and plan for that first day in the field to be kind of a uh, uh, let, let's go get things dialed in, start, you know, actually cover up some seed uh, with the planter, but, but not, not be off to the races. You know what I mean? If you can go do, you know, 10 or 20 acres and just, just uh, with the intention of, of doing lots of digging, making sure that everything on your planter is set right. Like, uh, you know, your, your distance, Cal, your populations are good. Your spacing is good. Your, your seed placement in the soil is good. If, you know, if you're running overlap control, make sure that, uh, that the clutches are turning on and off at the right times. Just, just kind of going through that kind of stuff to make sure that that planter is, uh, is really ready to rock and roll when, when, uh, when it is time to go. So, so once the planter is all set and ready to go, then it's time to plant. What should producers be watching out for once they're out in the field? Yeah, I think, um, I think uh, you know, there's a lot of considerations based on the conditions that they're in. And sometimes those conditions change. And, you know, whether it's, whether it's like, you know, soil types and, and soil moisture levels to, 
to um, to different um, uh, field finishes. You know, whether it's like a no-till field or, or a conventional tilled field, I think you want to make sure that your planter is doing a good job for whatever condition it's in. And um, I, I think it's really important to uh, you know to look at what your monitor is telling you, but but even more so to get out there and dig and do some actual checks to make sure that that seed is where you think it is and that your planter is doing a good job. And, you know, of course, once it comes up, once the crop starts to come up, then you've really got something to go by. But you really want to know that when you get started to make sure that 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 planter is doing what you think it's supposed to be doing. And those displays can collect and report on so much data. How can producers use that planting data? And can you talk a bit about the technology behind it? Yeah, you bet. I mean, uh, planters nowadays. Nowadays, there's there's uh, there's lots of levels of data, and what a you know what a planter can show you, and uh, and what it can collect, and the, and the level of information it can give you. Um, starting with kind of the most basic thing that a planter monitor will show is usually like a like a, a seed graph that gives you an idea uh, for every row that it's delivering seed, and uh, to make sure that that the population is correct and and um, and that they are consistent with each other. Um, that, that's kind of your most basic information. And then to go a level deeper, you know, a lot of planters today are capable of showing you more detailed seeding information, like singulation, which consists of, you know, how, how good your seed is singulating. Are you dropping one at a time? You're not missing any. You're not dropping any, any multiples or doubles. And, uh, and, and then also taking a look at your actual spacing performance, um, you know, how good, how, good or, how good of a job are you doing delivering your population at the right spacing, and is it consistent? And, um, you know, some planters could even show you uh, row unit performance as far as how the row unit is riding, um, which can affect, you know, your depth or, or your spacing if your row unit is bouncing around uh, too much. Um, the other big thing is is uh, depth performance. How, how good of a job is your row unit doing at placing seed at proper depth? Which you know, at the end of the day, all, all the consider, all the things you want to check for are basically that your planter is is doing the best job it can to place the seed in an environment where it's going to germinate very quickly and emerge very uniformly. Um, so when you think about the things that are important for that, is you know, good 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 seed to soil contact um, at the right depth, which is typically to moisture. You want to plant to moisture consistently. And uh, and you want to have, uh, you know, uniform depth, um, uniform covering, uniform soil density around the seed um, so that that seed is, has access to moisture so it can germinate quickly. And when it does germinate, you want all those little baby roots to, uh, to just proliferate and just explode and grow as quickly as possible to get that plant up and out as quickly as possible, but also at the same time as all of its neighbors. You don't want any, any little guys coming up late because that is a, a major impact to yield. So, so that, that's really, you know, the planter's job. And there's back to your question, as far as, um, you know, all the information that you can get, you can get a good report in the cab as far as, you know, your, your row, unit, row unit ride, your ground contact. If, if you have a, uh, an automatic um, row unit down pressure system, you can see how it's, how it's reacting to the, to the field conditions. Um, you know, if, if, sometimes if these things get a, little, uh, get a little out of control, you can either make adjustments or a lot of times it's just slow down, you know, find the speed that things are working well at 
and uh, and, and that's an important consideration too, especially if we get a kind of a late start where guys really just want to want to get over those acres as quickly as possible. But um, but we don't want to sacrifice the quality of the seed placement. So over the last few years, we've heard a lot about high speed planting. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think high speed planting it's a uh, it, it's definitely something that a lot of guys are interested in. Um, high speed planting may or may not be for everyone. You know, um, of course, planters are available today. Like at Case IH, we've got early riser planters that we can sell basically that are that are high speed ready right out of the box from the factory with, with systems that enable speed, such as, um, you know, Delta Force, a hydraulic downforce system for the rows, um, speed-adjusted vacuum for the meters, um, you know, uh, high-speed advanced seed delivery systems. You know, we make use of a, of a speed tube from Precision Planting that can very accurately place, you know, give you good placement and spacing at the, at the higher speeds. Uh, wing downforce, so you don't float the wings. So, so the planters can be equipped with all these high-speed features, which can enable high-speed. But just because, you know, a producer might have a high-speed planter doesn't mean you can go out there and run 10 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. You really need the field conditions to uh, to kind of go hand-in-hand. Hand. You know, it's got to be a high-speed seed bed in order to work. But um, but there's definitely a lot of interest. There's, there's, there's equipment and, and I'll say systems as far as tillage systems out there that, that really lend itself nicely to that. And, and it does have a payback, you know, and, and this may be one of those years where, um, you know, taking advantage, we've got, we've got a weather window or, a, or a, you know, whatever climate zone you're in, you, you've kind of got a window of when it's ideal time on the calendar to plant, to, you know, to reach full maturity and full yield. However, within that window, you may only have a few days of really good conditions. And, and that's where high-speed planting can help you take advantage of those days where you have good conditions. Because if we only have a few of them, you know, and outside of those few good days, you may have a bunch of poor conditions, whether it's it's too dry or, or more likely this year, too wet. You know, we, we know that when you go plant when it's too wet, your 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 emergence, your stand is, is just not going to be as good. So if we can go faster and take more advantage, get over more acres when the conditions are good, that's going to help our our stand quality which is going to help our yield so so there really is kind of a payback to it if you're in a situation to take advantage of um of those good condition days if i'm a producer and i'm in the market for a new planter now and i want to up my game a little bit what should i be looking at you know what are some of the best sellers that are out there well i'm i'm a case ih guy so you know early riser planters are uh, are built with a lot of um design traits of our row unit mm-hmm. you know, there's a reason why we call it the early riser and uh you know we've done a lot of, of stand counts with side-by-side comparisons and the early riser typically does get a crop up quicker than some competitive models um and uh and when you go and actually do like leaf counts or or you know unit when you when you check to see that your plants are all up at the same time uh, we, we really rank amongst the highest in the industry um but as far as uh you know when you're looking at planters, um, you want to you want to get the right, you know, capacity for the uh, or the, or size it right for the number of acres that you're going to put in and kind of what you're geared for in terms of manpower, um, horsepower is a consideration, and uh, and just you know uh, how big the farm is for the for the crops that you're going to plant. But um, you know some of the best sellers today in, in 
we we saw a shift to um, towards twenty four rows. You know, twenty four row thirties being being one of the primary sizes. Um, you know, in past years, the sixteen row thirty has been a a forty foot bar has kind of been the primary, and it's shifted towards uh, that size bigger, that twenty four row thirty, which is a sixty foot bar. Mm-hmm. That's probably one of the best sellers nowadays. Do you get a sense for why that is? Yeah, I think I think part of it is um, you know as as uh, there, there's a lot of producers um, that um, that are after that capacity and, and, and farms have grown over time, um, and, and the other part of it is just like we're talking here. It, it's about I think a lot more folks are more aware of of what a good stand can mean towards your yield potential. Mm-hmm. And, and taking advantage of conditions. You know, go, going faster is one way to take advantage of good conditions, but another way is just to go bigger, right? If you have bigger equipment, it's less passes, and you can get over more, more acres in a given time. So um, so I, I think that's one of the big drivers. And, and there's other considerations, too. You know, I'm kind of talking about, you know, 16-row 30s and 24-row 30s, which is primarily, you know, corn, uh, a corn planter in some areas, that would also plant soybeans um and there, there's a multitude of other crops as well but those are probably the primaries but but then you've also got um, a lot of areas where where 15 inch planters are very very common um you know uh, and, and the driver there is for soybeans so when you're talking a 15 inch planter if a farmer has one one planter then then you're looking at a split row machine you know like a uh like a very common size machine would be a, a 1631 split row where there's 16 corn rows on, on 30 inch centers. And then, uh, and then when you use all the rows, there's 31 rows on 15 inch centers. So, so those are very common as well in, uh, you know, in the areas where, where 15 inch soybeans um, dominate. So we've talked so much about planters, but what about tractors? If a producer's in the market for a tractor to pull their planter, what should they be thinking about? Yeah. You know, um, I think there's a, there's a handful of considerations. One is uh, one is just you know, um, you know how big of a planter is it, and how fast are you going to pull it? Um, you know, for for high for high speed. Uh, but let's let's say for instance, a 24 row planter on 30 inch centers is a 60 foot planter. You know, traditional planting speeds for a machine like that would probably be around five miles an hour. And you could probably get that done with a with a with an MFD size tractor like a like like a like a Case IH Magnum, um, two hundred and ninety horse, engine horsepower give or take a little bit is really going to get the job done. But as you go faster, the horsepower requirement just goes up exponentially. You know, to pull a big twenty four row planter at ten miles an hour, and uh, you know if you're fully loaded with seed and maybe liquid fertilizer. Um, you're going to need some ponies to get that done, you know. And then you're talking one of the biggest MFD tractors you can get, like a, like a, like a three, three forty, three seventy, three eighty. You know, kind of getting into those higher, higher engine horsepowers, or even a, a small to mid-sized four-wheel drive. You know, like a, uh, like a Steiger. You know, really, a, really a sweet setup would be like a, a four seventy Steiger, five hundred horsepower Steiger to handle a big twenty-four row planter. And if you throw in some hills or things like that just being able to maintain speed in the field and then the other consideration is on the road you know you want to have enough tractor to uh, to handle handle the, the planter some of these bigger planters you know they weigh a lot and uh, there's just a lot of machine back there and you, you don't want it to to boss that tractor around as you're going down the road 
and uh, you want to maintain good control. So making sure that the tractor is is heavy enough and ballasted properly, and ha- you know, kind of has weight in the right places for um for the planter that is pulling. That's another consideration. Um, another thing is hydraulic capacity. You know, planters need um need to have enough uh, oil supplied to them to um to, to do their job adequately. So making sure that a tractor has enough hydraulic capacity. Um, you know, when I when I look at like our our Case IH twenty one fifty early risers. We actually use less. Or we have a, a lower oil hydraulic oil requirement than we did on the on the previous generation of planters, but um, but we still recommend uh, that a, you know a modern tractor with a high flow hydraulic system is paired up to that to uh, to give it ample you know j- uh, supply to do its job, and, and ideally you know you size that pump for more than what you need because you you, you may or may if you don't want to run wide open throttle all the time. If you're throttled back a little bit, maybe save some fuel. You still want to have enough flow for the for the planter to work properly. And then I think the last thing is um, is, is technology. You know, with, with a high technology planter, sometimes a higher technology tractor will make things will, will you know make things flow easier and better. Uh, will they pair together properly and and uh, you know a good GPS signal? There's all different levels of, of GPS, making sure that um, that you've got um, technology on your tractor to help take advantage of the technology that, that the planter is capable of. I think those are all things to consider. So, Tony, what else is happening in the equipment market? You know, I think we, we consistently see a shift towards um, towards technology, whether it's whether it's keeping more keeping track of, of, of information and you know seeing live mapping and, lo- and logging of data in the cab to, um, to, to planters that are higher tech in, in what they do, you know, like, like um, whether you're variable, variable rate planting with the delivery of seed or your variable rating fertilizer that you're putting on for different zones in the field, um, you know, that, that, that type of technology, we're seeing big, big adoption towards the ability to do those types of things. Um, also, the idea, you know, with, with, with the adoption of, of technology and, and, and we've seen a, a pretty strong adoption of electric drive planters, which gives us, it, it, it's almost like, like if you're pulling a, a 16-row planter, um, you know, if you get a planter that's got all the technology on it, it's almost like you're pulling 16 one-row planters and not one 16-row planter. You know, every row is is able to um, kind of adapt to the situation that that it's in. You know, as, as the field changes zones, or like, like on a curve, for instance, if a, if a producer's got a lot of curves or contours, we can actually adjust the spacing from one side of the toolbar to the other, so that your spacing is very consistent throughout a curve. Whereas, you know, like on the inside of a curve, on a traditional planter, the, the seeds would be very close together, and on the outside of the curve, that wing, they'd be all spread apart. But we can compensate for that now, and, and just things like that. Even soil types. I mean, like with a with a with the Delta Force system, it's row by row. So if, if you have a hard clay field uh, that's got a, a vein of sand that goes across the, the middle of it, you know, e- each row can adapt to the to the to the ground pressure that it needs to maintain good weight on the gauge wheels, which maintains proper depth. 
which is essential for uniform emergence. You know that 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 type of technology is uh, has been very very sought after and, and highly. Um, you know, we're seeing a heavy take rate on, on options like that from the factory. Mm-hmm. And earlier you were mentioning the combination of a new Steiger Series tractor and uh, a Case IH tillage system. I understand there's some special deals going on right now that producers can take advantage of. Yeah, you bet. Um, if you see your Case IH dealer, we've got some really good um, red-on-red deals right now that uh, that are definitely, definitely uh, attractive going into spring. And, uh, you know, if you've bought a new tractor or a new tillage tool or vice versa, it's something that you can take advantage of. If you're looking for a whole package, um, I, I would say just contact your, uh, your Case IH dealer or, uh, or take a look at CaseIH.com uh, to get some more information on that. There's definitely some good, some good spring deals going on right now. That's excellent. So make sure you go check those out. And uh, Tony McClellan with Case IH, we sure want to thank you for taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast Track. And we hope we can have you back as the season wears on. Yeah, you bet, Brent. It's been a pleasure. And uh, and hope hope all your listeners have a, uh, have a really good and, and successful spring. Excellent. Well, thank you much. And uh, make sure you go check those guys out at CaseIH.com. Make sure you get to your Case IH dealer and uh, set up a time where they can come out and, and show you the best of what they've got now in, uh, in tractors and planters and tillage equipment. So go check them out and uh, make sure you ensure yourself a successful Plant 19. Next up on Fast Line Fast Track, we welcome in Dan Sumner, the director of the Agricultural Issues Center at the University of California, Davis. On April 11th, the U.S. Department of Agriculture released its 2017 Ag Census. Released once every five years, the Ag Census is the data used to shape public policy and programs administered by the federal government. The census revealed some interesting insights into age and gender demographics, as well as the financial health of farms and ranches, and the development of technologies such as rural broadband and renewable energy sources. Dan, welcome to Fast Line Fast Track. Thank you. So the 2017 Ag Census just came out uh, within the last couple weeks, and uh, I'm sure you've been staying up late nights just pouring over all that data what are some of the key takeaways that you've seen um, just as you've looked past some of what is being reported in the news media? Yeah, well, I would say two things about it. One, uh, NAS did a remarkable job. That's the National Ag Statistics Service. Those people are real pros. They work like hell uh, at an almost impossible task. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did a good job again this year. So I want to say first thing uh, I'll say is congratulations to them. Uh, and then I'll bitch and moan about, uh, you know, things I wish they would have had and all that. But but that's step one. Uh, one of the real challenges uh, is, and, and w- so what we saw here is 100,000 farms, uh, fewer than we had before. It's still around 2, 2 million. It's a little above. But that definition of a farm is just something that uh, people need to understand. It's sold or might have sold. Uh, more than a thousand dollars worth of agricultural products, such that of that two million, we have about six hundred thousand that had less than a thousand dollars in sales. Mm-hmm. Now, the definition of the farm is supposed to be a thousand or more, but if you didn't get around to selling anything, or you grew, uh, if you had a lemon tree in your backyard like I do, you could value those lemons at a thousand bucks and never sold any. Yeah. Uh, if you like lemonade. Uh, so it is. Uh, it, it hadn't changed forever, uh, hadn't been adjusted for inflation 
or the realities of agriculture. So we have to, if you look at the headline numbers, don't think that has much to do with production of food and fiber as a business or even for consumers. It's it's a lot of people out uh, in rural areas and some urban areas that have some connection to farming something, often in, in, in really tiny ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not people that make a living at farming. It's not people that produce our food and fiber. Now, if you get to something where you'd be close to, to in a sense, making a living farming, you have to be talking about gross sales of over 100000 or so because – and, and there you're going to lose money, uh, you know, some years, as anybody that knows anything about agriculture knows. So you've got to have gross revenue up there to have any net, any shot at having a significant net income. Mm. So that's step one. I would encourage uh, folks who look at the census to be careful with the overall numbers if they're interested in commercial agriculture. Even though that $2 million probably undercounts the number that could be eligible. So I don't fill out a census form, and I look at my backyard, and I say, gee, my wife is really good at growing peaches and lemons and a few other little things here in California. Do we grow $1,000 worth of stuff? Yeah, probably so. Would it, Does anybody really want to call me a farmer? Nah, not really. So we have to be careful there. A 4-H kid would one steer at the county fair as a farmer by that measure. That's certainly more than 1000 bucks. So we have to be careful. Uh, how to interpret these numbers. They are what they are, um, and the definition hasn't changed, so we can look at some things over time. The other one thing I'd say is, uh, and everybody doing surveys knows this, everybody ever filling out a survey knows there's just so many of them, that even farmers that I I talk to, and I call them patriots, they're trying to do the right thing. They want to fill out the forms, and they just get so many requests for data that that some of them say, I just can't do another form. And maybe the census is the one they don't fill out. Um, so it's a, it's a challenge. When I say NAS had a really hard job, uh, it's a real challenge for them to get the data together. Mm-hmm. So that's that pitch, and we can talk about some specific, specific numbers if you want. I think the I wouldn't worry much about the number of farms going down slightly uh, since 2012. Uh, the, it... it really not enough to matter so i think that's uh that's pretty much an, a non-story mm-hmm. uh farm income uh, moves around with prices so that's not telling us a lot in the census we've still got substantial farms producing a half a million or more a million dollars or more and those are really the part of commercial agriculture that most of us earn, get our food and fiber from so when you look at that, uh, one of the things mentioned that is a total of 43.6% of farms had positive net cash farm income in 2017. That kind of goes back to what really is a farm and how, how is this being reported. But but what do you take from that number? I, I don't know what to make of that one. We know that 2017 had low prices for some commodities, high prices for others. There's a bad year for milk, which is a major commodity in the United States. Uh, of course, every dairy farm is going to have a lot of uh, gross income. Every commercial dairy farm has has uh, at least hundreds of thousands of dollars of gross income. In the last few years, uh, many of them have had negative net farm income. Mm-hmm. And so it's been really tough for the dairy industry. turns out we had a great year in 2014, but 2012 was also a bad year for dairy. So we've had a 
we we've had a, a run of a string of some bad years and happened to be 2012 and 2017 both of them were pretty bad years for the dairy industry which i mentioned specifically because it's it's a big part uh uh of of agriculture really scattered everywhere from new england to california and a lot of places in between uh including the midwest the um the, the other industry that I'll mention is the grain industry, and, and we've heard a lot about trade turmoil in the last couple of years. But 2017 uh, has, has put some pressure on the grain industry in terms of prices, and so you'll have some negative farm incomes there uh, among the large commercial farms as well as uh, people struggling. Mm-hmm. I think one thing we did see in this census is farm consolidation continuing. So if you get down to industry by industry, You'll see further, fewer farms in everything but the largest categories. That's partly just a natural phenomenon of farms uh, consolidate just like other businesses do. That's a way to generate enough income to be competitive. Fortunately, here in the United States, we have some really talented farmers. And what that means, if you're a talented young person, uh, you don't consider farming unless you can have some income it's at least comparable to what, you know, your brother who's going to be a school principal or your other other sister who's going to be a, uh, the vice president of the bank. You know, you may not have to make the same income, but you want something comparable to raise your family and the like. And what that means is that as, as farmers are getting better and better, and I think they are, uh, they're going to have more income mm-hmm. because they're going to be competitive. You know, they won't be like their cousin who's a hedge fund operator in Manhattan, but they've got to have the opportunity to to make a good living if they're talented, and most of them are these days. You know, the, the data shows uh, about 320,000 young producers aged 35 or less, and then one in four producers is a beginning farmer with 10 or fewer years of experience, about 27% of all producers. Based on what you've seen from the numbers here, what kind of future are we setting up for, for this next generation of farmers coming into the business? I'm hugely optimistic, um, and not so much by looking at these census numbers, but by other information that I have about the quality. Uh, let me say one thing that we really did well in this census, I mean we meaning NAS and, and everybody that tries to uh, think about data, and, and and that is we broadened the number of producers per farm. You go back, we used to have one principal operator per farm. That made it simple. So, you know, a brother and sister partnerships or, or a brother and his sister-in-law where, where the, you know, his brother's off being the banker are partners. Well, which one's the principal operator? Yeah. I know people where one of them handles the almonds, the other handles the alfalfa and field crops. Which one's principal? <laughs> doesn't make any sense. It's not a not a reasonable question to ask. And then this census allowed uh, uh, to have multiple principal operators per farm, and they call them producers now, which is the word that farmers will use. So you have lots of producers. You can have several producers and several principal producers on a farm, and I think that's realistic. About the one thing that did is we now are going to see more female producers. Because, and this is, uh, you know, my speculation, but after spending a lot of time with a lot of farm families, so granddad's still around. He does a few things. He's 80. Who's going to say he's not the principal? If you had to pick one principal operator, you know, you're just going to say granddad because 
you don't want to tell him he's not. Yeah. You know, and he, he might, if he thought about it, he'd say, hey, don't list me anymore. But then who's he going to list? Because you got four or five of the next generation that are now in partnership. They may all be related in one form or another. And you know and I know that lots of commercial operations, uh, family operations, have several family members engaged. And, and I think that that is one thing that we miss about the young farmers. We'll have people that are coming into the business that aren't yet listed as one of the principal producers, but they're on the way. Yeah. It's a craft that you learn, and it takes a You don't, you know, a lot of the farmers that I deal with are college graduates, but they're not running the place because they graduated from college. They're working their, their way into running the place after they get some apprenticeship, if you will. So I feel fairly good about where we're going. The other thing about the aging of farmers is we have to be careful that uh, a lot of people enter farming or expand their farming as they retire. So there are people that may, maybe you, could have been me uh, or my brothers, have a job, live five miles or 10 miles out of town, have a few head of beef cattle, and beef cattle is the modal case in this case. They're farmers, but they're not planning on making a living at it. When they retire, they may do a little more farming. Uh, so you see people entering farming at 55 and expanding at 65, but they're not producing a lot of agriculture. But they're, there's enough to be qualified as a farmer. It may be ten or $20,000. If you sell 10 steers, you're in the fifteen dollars or $20,000 range maybe. And there's a lot of that out there, and I, I think they're a healthy part of agriculture, but they're not the next generation, so to speak. Sure. And as that next generation comes in to, uh, to take over things on the farm, a couple of things that, uh, that bear watching that came out of this census. Uh, one is that there was a slight uptick in the uh, number of farms with Internet access to uh, 75.4%, up from 69.6%, and also a total of uh, about 133,000 farms and ranches reported using renewable energy-producing systems, uh, more than double the uh, uh, 57,000 in 2012. So two key components here, uh, technology and, uh, and renewable energy going forward. And I would say, I don't know, uh, you know, in, in California, a little bit different, but around the country, I don't know any commercial size farm that isn't connected to the inter- internet and uses it for their business. Mm-hmm. So again, remember, we've got uh, 600,000 farms producing $1,000 or less. Uh, I didn't see the internet number uh, by sales class, that'll be available. If it, it may be there now, and I just didn't notice it. In terms of the renewable energy, that is a significant factor is government policy, of course. We're, uh, we expanded subsidy programs for that, uh, uh, not just in California where it's greenhouse gases for dairy, uh, subsidy for dairy farms and other things. Uh, but, but we've, you know, they can take advantage of solar and this and that and the other. Um, uh, whether that's a good idea commercially or a bad idea, I think you you hit the nail on the head. It's a way to think about the way farmers are plugged into whatever's going. And and the guys that are, when I say we've got talented people out there, they're looking for ways to do business that, that makes money. And so I know a lot of organic farmers, organic milk, for example, uh, they may have two dairies, one organic, one non-organic, uh, the same as with the vegetable producers the same with others same with marketing at farmers markets and things like that um, they'll say gee i have a sister-in-law that enjoys it 
I actually like the farming side of it, so it's not me down there on Saturday afternoon or Saturday morning. Uh, but if we can make a little money that way. So they're always looking for things. The organic market, I think, is a great one there where people will have several uh, parts of the organization. If there's a market for um, organic agriculture, they're perfectly – they may not eat organic food at home. They may not worry about it for their own nutrition or for their own uh, reasons. But if somebody wants to pay for it, they're happy to. Hmm. The same has to do with industrial hemp, which Kentucky, Tennessee, other places are growing a lot. It's expanding. The Farm Bill just uh, uh, had some legislation to allow it to grow further. I, I know lots of farmers uh, around the country that are saying to themselves, yeah, we'll see if there's an opportunity. If there is, I'll take advantage of it. It has to do with every other innovation out there. People are looking for opportunities, legal opportunities that'll that'll allow them to uh, to generate some revenue for the farm and I think that's always been true and I'm optimistic it's going to continue out here in California pistachio acreage has gone from nothing to three or four hundred thousand dollars and several hundred thousand dollars in revenue uh, because it was an opportunity and guys that might have grown cotton on that land a generation ago, same grower, same family, now they're in pistachios and almonds. So we see that in the acreage numbers. You'll see uh, uh, around the country when you get into the state-by-state totals, acreage moving. Uh, we, we still report oats as though it's a major commodity in the United States in the census. I was laughing about it. We're down to a few hundred thousand acres of oats in the country. Um, it's just not a significant crop in the United States anymore. Uh, but what we still report it in the census is one of the major items because we have a historical connection to it. And other commodities are now much more important in terms of the key value measures that are important to, to generating revenue for agriculture. Farmers are just innovative in the technology they're using. They're sens- what I call them is sensible innovators. Uh, they're not running after the latest fad. But they'll check it out, and and as soon as it looks like there's some chance of making it pay, they'll expand a little bit, see if it works for them, and then they're off. So for our producers who are listening to the show here, getting ready to head out into the field here for, for Plant 19, what would be your pep talk to them to give them encouragement in the, in the face of some of the uh, well-reported challenges that we've heard about in the industry this year? Yeah. Yeah, well— uh, Uh, I'm not going to tell somebody the next uh, greatest and best thing. What I will say is, um, you know, as they know, prices go up, they come back down, they go back up again. Uh, Anything you do has to be for the long run. Uh, If you're fortunate enough to be in a financial position that you can do that, and I understand there are people that are challenged out there, and then it's it's that much tougher to decide uh, what to do this year. I'm actually fairly optimistic that we'll get this trade mess sorted out over the next six months or, or so. You know, it may not be in the news cycle uh, this month, but, you know, there's the China challenge. There's some other things. Uh, we're paying attention to walnuts out here because India has a big tariff on them. I, I think, um, and maybe it's just the optimist in me, I, I just think uh, uh, agricultural trade is so important that that'll that's got to sort itself out and, and uh, 
And I think the administration doesn't want to have that hanging over its head going into 2020. So I, I'm fairly optimistic we'll get some things sorted out. Uh, now, does that mean plant soybeans, not corn this year? I, You know, I, that's not what I'm going to say. I don't know. But I feel okay about that. And in terms of oil prices, that's another thing that farmers watch on the input cost side. Um, I, I feel we're okay there, too. I don't see them going through the roof or anything. We've, we've still got uh, oil production in the United States uh, going great guns to the political situation in Venezuela and Iran is, are worrisome, but I feel okay there. So that's optimistic news. I think it doesn't mean that 2019 is going to be a boom price year. Uh, you know, who knows what the weather is going to be. But uh, but I feel like uh, uh, we're climbing out of some tougher times. So earlier you referenced the dairy industry. Where do you see that segment headed this year? Well, the dairy industry, I'll say again, is something we're watching, and it's important really all over the country. And they, they have been struggling with low prices at you know, for them, lower feeder, lower feed prices is a blessing. Uh, you know, they, they don't want to see their neighbor down the road struggling, but um, but it has been the sort of one thing that's kept them rolling. Mm-hmm. So that's something to watch in 2019, I think. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, will some of that contraction that we're seeing in that industry end up being beneficial to those who are left standing and, and are still strong? What there is is there's not aggregate contraction, there's consolidation. So aggregate milk production is not down, uh, and that's partly uh, a better technology and, and, frankly, really good management. So when you con- that's an industry where we've consolidated, and, and places like Wisconsin have seen milk, through, milk per cow go up like crazy with consolidation. Mm-hmm. And, and so overall milk production, a lot fewer farms, but... but uh, at least as much milk production or more uh, in the major dairy areas. California is a bit of an exception for some environmental policy reasons, which I think is a challenge in certain, some parts of the country. But um, uh, so it's, that's why it's a, a it's a really interesting industry to to keep our eye on, uh, and they have had some challenging prices. Well, Dan, we sure appreciate you taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast Track. And as some of these things shake out, like the uh, the trade negotiations and uh, another harvest later on this fall, we would love to get back in touch with you and uh, kind of get your insight as we wrap up 2019. Thank you. That was Dan Sumner, Director of the Agricultural Issues Center at the University of California, Davis. <laughs> And now we head to the stage of the legendary Ernest Tubb Records Shop, 417 Broadway in downtown Nashville, Tennessee, where we catch up with Tim Atwood. Tim spent 38 years in the house band at the Grand Ole Opry and played with some of the greatest entertainers in country music history. He'll be hitting the road this summer, and you can catch him May 10th, opening for Lori Morgan in Bremen, Georgia, on May 14th at the legendary Bluebird Cafe in Nashville, and May 18th hosting the Ernest Tubb Midnight Jamboree, presented by our sponsor, the Ernest Tubb Records Shop at the Texas. This is Troubadour Theater in Nashville. All right, back at uh, Ernest Tubb Record Shop, stage four, Fast Line, Fast Track. And uh, a pleasure to welcome in Tim Atwood. Tim has appeared, get this, more than 8,500 times on the stage of the Grand Old Opry. You've seen him uh, on Hallmark Channel's Home and Family Show, on Fox and Friends, and on RFD TV's Larry's Country Diner and Country Family Reunion. 
He's also a frequent host of the Ernest Tubb Midnight Jamboree, presented by our musical sponsor, Ernest Tubb Record Shop. Tim, welcome in. Thanks. Boy, you make me sound really good. Uh, no, I tell you what, uh, you do a good job of that on your own. Thank uh, you. Right off the bat, uh, man, you've had uh, a tremendous career and uh, learned here in the past few days that uh, uh, you're getting some more accolades coming your way from the Academy of Western Artists. And, uh, uh, man, you've been inducted into the ALM Musicians Hall of Fame and... Uh, uh, you know, I know you don't make music for the accolades, but uh, man, what does that mean to your your career to uh, to, to be recognized uh, in that vein? I have totally enjoyed the fact uh, I worked so many years behind so many people. I looked at the pictures as I came in, and I think there's very few people up here on the wall that I haven't worked for at some point or the other uh, on the Opry. But to be able to get out and do what I do, and I learned what I do from sitting behind people like Jimmy Dickens and Porter Wagner and Jeannie. Seely, how they entertain. So I'm, I'm an entertainer. That's kind of what I, that's what I enjoy doing. Watching people laugh and turn around doing a tear-jerking song, watch them cry. I like taking that emotional roller coaster. Mm-hmm. How did you get to the Opry? I, uh, I moved to Nashville when I was 20 years old, and uh, I went to work with Jim Ed Brown and Helen Cornelius and Mel Street, and uh, I got off the road. And I started subbing for Jerry Whitehurst a little bit. Uh, I say a little bit. We were doing nine shows a week, and he may do one of them. So I I started at the Opry in 1980, and... uh, that's how I came in. He just said, man, you got this. And he just walked away. And I, I was at the Opry for 38 years. So I really, uh, God bless me with that. I, you know, I've really had a, a good time doing what I'm doing. And if that wasn't enough, uh, then uh, you have struck out on your own. You're uh, writing probably as much, if not more, than you ever have. You're uh, doing uh, your own performing. Right. What, what's that like to, uh, to, to get out there and kind of, uh, you know, stretch your chops a little bit? It's been great. I'm still a fresh writer. I'm still trying to get the grasp of that. There's so many great songwriters here in town, so it's easy to find material. But uh, I'm enjoying trying to write at least. But being able to get out and perform and uh, have people enjoy what you do, I think that makes me happiest. Is you know they come to a show and for an hour, hour and a half, uh, they forget about everything else. And that's kind of the thing for me is to take you out of your stressful situations and things like that. And uh, I've really, like I said, I've enjoyed it. Roxanne and I, she drives, you know, she does all the driving. All I got to do is hold the wheel. It's uh, great. Uh, now you, you talk about being a uh, relatively new writer, but uh, your music has kind of a wholesome patriotic quality to it. And uh, it kind of harkens back to, to simpler times where uh, it speaks a lot of, uh, uh, family values and uh, work ethic uh, in a time when that meant something. Uh, you know, I remember uh, hearing I'll Stand Up and Say So played for the first time uh, uh, around uh, uh, the 4th of July last year. My buddy Billy Bowles did oh, yeah, KSSL yeah. Love in, uh, Billy. in Lubbock, Texas played that and uh, boy, boy that uh, really hit me in the heart when I heard that. Well, great. So uh, a lot of those songs uh, really speak to that, man. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit about where that comes from. Well, uh, that song, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Chuck Day actually wrote the song, and I was band leader on one of the shows, and he did that song, and man, it was like it was for you. Mm-hmm. It struck me in the heart because uh, I grew up playing gospel music. I believe in God. I'm a Christian, and I, I don't know. There was just something about that that you know, uh, there was a big controversy over the uh, football players taking a knee, and uh, I'll stand up and say so. I stand up for the anthem and for the flag for all. 
those veterans who can't stand up for themselves and stuff. So, yeah, I, that song really got to me, and uh, it's really it's a great song. And what it says is kind of where I'm I'm coming from. I grew up with all that stuff. Where do you usually find inspiration these days for songs? Well, just on the road. Mm-hmm. You sit and watch people and, and talk to people, and uh, they won't know it, but they'll say something. You go, hey, wait a minute, I need to write that down. Mm-hmm. And then you get back and start working on it. Sure. Now, you've been one who's been able to make good use of, uh, of social media and some of the new media technology. How has it been to adapt to that and to, to use that to really build a, a grassroots following? Well, uh, the business has changed so much. I mean, it's just, uh, I think it's a necessary. Uh, the whole music business has changed. Used to, you had to have big labels and everything behind you. But these days, you can do it pretty much all yourself. A lot of people have studios in their home. They cut all their records at home, and uh, they do all their own promotion. So uh, it's it's an improvement in a lot of ways, but it's a big adjustment for an old guy like me. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, one, one of the things that uh, you're doing is uh, still a bunch of performing uh, with your good friend Jeannie Seeley. Yes. Uh, uh, you guys have been together on the on the Opry and on the uh, Midnight Jamboree, and now she's the uh, host of Sundays with Seeley on uh, Willie's Roadhouse, right. XM. How did that uh, performing relationship developed? Well, uh, when I started working at the Opry, uh, I was back in Jeannie at that time, and uh, we just became instant friends. There was just some chemistry there that we became friends, and over the years, it's just grown. And uh, we get together, we go out and do shows, just me and her and a piano, and it's real intimate, but it's so much fun. She may be the wittiest person I've ever been around. and uh, But, I mean, we just love each other. And, and, it, and I think it shows. A lot of people said the other night, we, I did the jamboree with her, and a guy came up, he said, you guys have the best chemistry. But I think it's from knowing her for 40 years, and we know each other, you know, and, and how we do stuff. And she's great. I love Jeannie. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you in 2019? I was just recently nominated for the AWA, like you said a while ago, uh, for the album of the year. And after leaving the Opry, I've only been gone four years. And to go from a sideman to spotlight, I mean, it's just I'm having more fun. This is the most fun I've ever had with my clothes on. And uh, in a previous episode, uh, we, we spoke with T. Graham Brown, and uh, he shared that same sentiment that even at this point in his career, he's having more fun than he's ever had. And it's it's really cool to see uh, you guys be able to uh, still have that longevity and, and, and still draw a crowd and yeah. uh, and uh, be able to catch the ear. People it just shows that uh, when there's good music out there, people will find it. Yes, it's it's great. Uh, I do. We've done a lot of shows together. I've opened for T a couple of times, and uh, he and I do. We've done a couple churches together, mm-hmm. just me and him and a piano. And uh, that's a. It's just a hoot to work with T because he's such an incredible singer, but. Uh, also knowing what a great heart he has. He's got a great heart, and uh, he and I both have been through the trials and tribulations uh, of problems, demons, but uh, we've both overcome them, and I think we've came out on the other side better people. Mm -hmm. Anybody at this stage in your career you'd still love to be able to work with? Boy, that's a hard question. Uh, I really can't think of anybody that would 
really knocked me out. I mean, I've played for uh, Barry Gibb of, of the Bee Gees. I remember we did jive talking on the Opry one night, and I went, Mr. Acuff is spinning in his grave, and we're doing jive talking on the Opry. But, no, I, I, right off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody I'd really want to just go out and play for more. And of importance to our audience, uh, understand uh, the, that you've got some ties to farming. I do. Uh, when I was about 13 or 14 years old, my grandparents had a farm in uh, rural Mississippi. And uh, I remember this. This was even in like 72. And there was this gentleman that plowed the fields with a mule and a single plow. Mm -hmm. And uh, he would be down there working in the hot sun of Mississippi. And my granny at would, I would pump the water out of the well. And we had to let it sit for 30 minutes so the sand would settle. Mm -hmm. And she would make a, a quart jar of ice water and said, take this down to Jim and give him some water. But I, I did that. And my dad, uh, he worked at Caterpillar Tractor Company. Mm -hmm. And he got off at 3.30 in the afternoon. And he he would come home, he would eat in about 10 minutes, and we were out to the farm, and he, he worked for a gentleman out there that had a farm, and uh, we'd get out there about 4, 4.30, and he would be out till 11 o'clock at night plowing, and me and my brother had to sit in the car and do our homework and all that stuff. We were coming home one night, and he was speeding to get home, and this cop pulled us over, and the cop said, do you know you're speeding? He said, yeah. Well... This cop was standing there, and all these flies are buzzing around him, and he's batting flies here and there. He can't get rid of them. My dad said, boy, them circle flies are bad. And he said, what do you mean circle flies? He said, well, those are the flies that fly around the back end of a horse. The cop said, are you calling me a horse's butt? He said, no, but it is kind of hard to fool them flies. <laughs> How do you top that? That's that's what I do. Like I said, I love to entertain. I don't even know how you top that. But, uh, uh, Tim, man, we sure do appreciate you taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast Track. And uh, uh, we're going to let you get set up and uh, play a couple numbers for us. I'd be happy to. Thanks, All Brent, right. for everything. Yes, sir. Thank you. Tim Atwood, folks. goes on and on Guess I'll have to say I'm tired of all this liberality Need the backbone to stand up and say no But it'll have to start with me I'll tell them that I don't agree Yeah, I'm gonna let them know Cause I'll stand up and say so Tell them I believe in the Bible What it says is true I'm thankful for the ones who died For the old red, white, and blue When they try and take my rights away I'll proudly stand and tell them no It ain't gonna happen Cause I'll stand up and say so 
every monument in Washington. Words are inscribed of God and country, things they weren't ashamed to say. Have you ever thought of the price we pay to defend our country's freedom? They can't take that away. Guess I'll have to say I'm tired of all this liberality. We need the backbone to stand up and say no. It'll have to start with me. I'll tell them that I don't agree. Yeah, I'm going to let them know, because I'll stand up and say so. Tell them I believe in the Bible. What it says is true. I'm thankful for the ones who died for the old red, white, and blue. When they try and take my rights away, I'll proudly stand and tell them, no, it ain't gonna happen. Cause I'll stand up and say so. For the old red, white, and blue When they try and take my rights away I'll proudly stand and tell them no It ain't gonna happen Cause I'll stand up and say so oh, It ain't gonna happen Cause I'll stand up and say so song called uh, I'll Stand Up and Say So. I'm going to do you another song now that uh, I learned from Mickey Gilly. And remember, busy fingers are happy fingers. One, two, a one, two, three, go. Well, girls all get prettier at closer time. Well, they all began to look like movie stars. Taking place puts a glow on every face of the fallen angels on the back street bar. If I could rate them on a scale of one to ten, looking for a nine, but eight could work right in. A few more drinks and I might slip to five or even four. When tomorrow morning comes. I wake up with a number one. Swear I'll never do it anymore. The girls all get prettier at closing time. They all begin to look like movie stars. The girls all get prettier at closing time. When the change stops taking place. Puts a glow on every face of the fallen angels. Hot backstreet bar. 
I don't mean to criticize the girls at all. Cause I know Robert Redford, even over halls. We all picture in our minds a girl that looks just right. Ain't it funny, ain't it strange? The way a man's opinions change when he starts to face that lonely night. For the girls all get prettier at close to time. Now they all begin to look like movie stars. Girls all get prettier at close to time. When the change starts taking place, puts a glow on every face of the falling angels on a backstreet bar. The falling angels on a backstreet bar. That was the music of Tim Atwood. Make sure to check him out at timatwood.com. On the next episode of Fast Line Fast Track, we'll talk rural broadband expansion. We'll also discuss ways to create a healthy decision-making dynamic among farm family members. And we'll take you back to the Ernest Tubb Record Shop for music from country hitmaker Marty Brown. Be sure to follow Fast Line Fast Track on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Pinterest, and add our Spotify playlist to your library for music from past, current, and upcoming guests. Until next time, it's Brent Adams. Y'all come back and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at brent.adams at fastline.com.